Hi there, welcome back. We just covered Legal AF, which is live. Jack Smith ready to pounce after Trump gets more bad news. And um, Karen says, Friedman Agnifilo says that it's going to happen anytime now. The indictment's going to happen anytime now. I think I should do that. So. More indictments. Legal AF. Okay, great. So I'm sharing this on YouTube. And uh, Facebook. Anyway, so voila. Let's see if there's anything else going to be going on. Chicks are so loud, giving me a headache. Um. There's nothing new so on Midas Touch, so I'm gonna go to my other my other subscriptions. Spanish freaking Democrats for a huge surprise victory. Yeah, Donna Deegan won mayor she was uh outspent four times by four times uh the uh um DeSantis ally okay <laughs> Trump hit with nightmare news and new legal trouble one day ago I mean it, 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 you did force accountability and then he did it again the defamation the calling you a liar the, the exact same things the jury held him liable for the day before he did again the next day on national television yeah. is that just the way it has to be do you think that potentially could be actionable if it if you were to file another suit, would it work the same way? So it's definitely actionable. And here the cruelty will make him less wealthy. He's not gonna get away with it another time. Um, there are, it's, it's unprecedented for a person to have held, been held liable in defamation to keep doing the defamation. Hmm. <laughs> so there's not a lot of cases that we can look to for a playbook about how to do it. But <laughs> suffice to say, I have a lot of lawyers who are very busy looking Trust. into this. And we are Trump weighing all of our options. sabotage everything. You also have another as live case. As can. From the time when he was president and he was stating these same it's untrue things about you, defaming you for. in the same way. That case uh, is still working its way through the courts. What is your expectation in terms of what's going to happen there? You're going to see news from us in that case very, very soon, Rachel. What counts as very soon? Uh, I don't know how late the people work tonight. Two to three days, Max. Wow. Okay. But we're gonna we're fully pursuing that case. We got a nice, a very good decision from the D.C. Court of Appeals, essentially affirming Judge Kaplan that when Cap when 
Trump said what he said about E. Jean in 2019. He was not acting as president. Mm -hmm. We're quite confident that that will be affirmed. And then we'll be able to move forward with damages in that case. We don't even need a finding a liability because we already have it. And we'll be able to find damages. And there, the def defamation damages are much higher because that was the first statement he made. And that's what really destroyed her reputation as an advice columnist at Elle and to all her readers and people who, who trusted her and who looked up to her. In terms of the timing here, after those statements that are still at issue in this live case, as you mentioned, you were let go from Elle in yeah, terms of your job. Fire. And you think that was related to his well, defamation? No, it was related. I'll admit that you couldn't find anyone more critical of CNN's decision to platform Donald Trump for a town hall that was little more than a naked ratings grab for the network than me, but there was a silver lining, and that was Donald Trump's decision to defame E. Jean Carroll again, one single day after he was found liable in a New York civil court for abuse and defamation. Because now, according to E. Jean Carroll and her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, it looks very much like they're going to be moving forward with yet another defamation lawsuit. And given Trump's track record in court against them, this doesn't exactly bode well for the guy. Now, just for posterity, here's that moment where Trump, incapable of understanding the concept of consequences, defamed E. Jean Carroll on national TV. This Colleague, is a jury of nine. Lawyer for E. Jean Carroll. Says... So, um, yes. People who found you liable of sexual abuse. Do you think that that, that will deter women from voting for you? No, I don't think so, because I think the whole thing, just so you understand. Ready? Ready. I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. This woman said, I met her at the front door of Bergdorf Goodwin, which I rarely go into, other than for a couple of charities. I met her in the front door. She was about 60 years old. This is like 22, 23 years ago. I met her in the front door of Bergdorf Goodman. I was immediately attracted to her. She was immediately attracted to me. And we had this great chemistry. We're walking into a crowded department, so we had this great chemistry. And a few minutes later, we end up in a, a room, a dressing room, of Bergdorf Goodman, right near the cash register. And then she found out there were locks on the door, so she said, I found one that was open. She found one. She learned this at trial. She found one that was open. What kind of a woman meets somebody 
and brings them up, and within minutes, you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room. Fucking slut-shaming her. She was married then or not. John Johnson. (laughs) I feel sorry for you, John Johnson. So yeah, hope it was worth the laughs, because that single response may have just cost Trump another several million dollars. And hearkening back to my beef with CNN, I hope that them platforming an abuser and filling their audience with his fans was worth causing pain not just to E. Jean Carroll, but abuse victims across the country who watched as this guy mocked the woman that he abused while his rally attendees cackled away. I hope the pain caused was worth that one night bump in your ratings, which have since dropped below Newsmax. And look, yeah, I'm no media genius okay. like Chris Lick, but it's almost like there's a lesson here in sacrificing your journalistic principles in favor of naked ratings grabs. Now, in terms of why this is especially bad for Trump, recognize that the whole point of the punitive damages that Trump was forced to pay in the initial defamation case was to punish him and deter him from future defamation. And yet, what did he do within 24 hours of getting hit with that verdict? He engaged in more defamation, meaning that if and when E. Jean Carroll sues Trump again in a third defamation case, the jury can look at this and say, clearly Donald Trump has learned nothing from those punitive damages imposed in the first trial, so clearly we have to increase that amount. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they recognize that a couple million isn't enough, and that maybe they double or triple it in an effort to finally reach a number where the punishment is felt enough to actually deter Trump from defaming anyone in the future. And this shouldn't come as a surprise, either. This is literally how the system works. As violations accumulate, the punishment becomes more severe. If you go to court with no priors, you might get off with a slap on the wrist, but if you go to court with a whole rap sheet, that's taken into account and the consequences are generally worse. Donald Trump is proving to the jury, in real time, that he is not willing to take the law seriously, that he doesn't think it applies to him, and so the onus will be on them, on the court, to determine a punishment that reaches a level that might actually make the guy pay attention. But clearly, we haven't reached that point yet. You'll notice in the initial clip, too, that Rachel discusses the other ongoing defamation case against Trump. Now, just for some background here, uh, in 2022, New York passed a law giving adult sexual assault victims a one-time opportunity to file civil cases, even if the statute of limitations to bring about a criminal case has expired. E. Jean Carroll subsequently filed a lawsuit accusing Trump of rape, and as we know, a jury found Trump liable. But in 2019, while Trump was president, Carroll filed a defamation lawsuit against him for claiming that she lied in her memoir. Bill Barr, then the attorney general, swapped out Trump to the federal government, claiming absurdly that Trump can't be held personally liable for actions taken during his role as president. And I say absurdly because it is not within the scope of presidential duties to attack your abuse victim. That case has worked its way through the appeals process and is now sitting on Judge Kaplan's docket. That's the judge that's going to oversee this case. Those were split into two separate cases because the first case was against Trump as a private citizen. The other was against him as president, where he decided that he could try to use the government as a shield against any accountability. But hopefully the court system finds that Trump's attacks on E. Jean Carroll were not within the scope of his role as president, because of course they're not. And a defamation trial can proceed against Trump for those attacks that he waged on her in 2019. And I'll just end with this. Good on E. Jean Carroll for standing up to the guy who, until she won this case, had been able to lie with impunity. It was quite literally not until E. Jean Carroll won this first lawsuit that Trump had ever been held to account for his lies, as dangerous and damaging and defamatory as they were. She suffered an avalanche of attacks, not just the ones that incited the lawsuit to begin with, but also in the way that any Trump attacks work, where his thousands and thousands of supporters swarm because they saw the bat signal from their leader. For any person to have to endure what she endured 
is the envy of no one. But because of her strength and the competence of her legal team, there's finally precedent for Trump to be held accountable for his actions. And it shows that so long as Trump wants to continue to ignore the law, to ignore legal precedent, E. Jean Carroll will be there ready to fight. And given the fact that she was able to convince a jury once, it stands to reason that she'll be able to convince a jury again that Trump is liable every time he decides to commit the same offense. And hopefully other prosecutors and other district attorneys recognize that Trump is not invincible, he's not untouchable, he's not infallible. And that if they didn't want to be the first ones to pursue justice against him swiftly, that that veil has been pierced. Donald Trump has relied on this notion that he's above the law, but that part of his life is finished. He spent years and years and years steeped in criminal behavior. Now comes the point where he answers for it. Before you go, I need your help. I'm right on the cusp of hitting 2 million subscribers, so please help me grow this channel so the progressive media ecosystem grows by hitting the subscribe button right here on the screen. I also started a Spanish channel so we can finally start regaining... Interviews President Biden, oh yeah. We're here today in the White House. Thank you, President Biden, for taking the time to speak with me. He said this is what he was most proud of. This is the first interview you've done since your big announcement that you've nominated... Uh, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme yes. Court. You've had a number of qualified candidates to choose from. Why did you ultimately go with her? Well, several reasons. Number one, uh, I committed two years ago that if I got elected president, I would name, had an opportunity, I'd name the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court. Because I think the court should look like the country. I think it should reflect the country. And so, uh, and by the way, our administration is the most diverse administration in American history. We actually, I pointed out to me, look around, you can see that there's more women in my administration than there are men. The point is that I want to bring the country together. And number two, she's brilliant. She is absolutely brilliant. She, uh, uh, she graduated with magnum cum laude from the graduate school. She was the editor of Law Review. Law school. She's clerked for the Supreme Court. She's been uh, she's been confirmed by the United States Senate for three different positions, and she has real character. Um, I think character matters. I think it's a, and I think background and being able to understand perspectives from other about other people in the country matters as well. They tell me I don't know for a fact. They tell me I presided over more Supreme Court justice than anybody living. I used to be chairman of the formula of the uh, to the chairman of the judiciary committee, and uh, I voted on an awful lot of judges. But uh, she's incredibly qualified, and she has a disposition that is one that is can put litigants at ease. And she, she for example, this is a woman who uh, um, was a federal public defender, sentencing commission. Judge, but uh, she also has been endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. So I think she has real balance, real character, and, uh, and I think she'll add a dimension to the court that uh, is going to make it even better. Well, no, despite these qualifications, we've seen the usual opposition from Republicans. Lindsey Graham came out recently and said that this is a win for the radical left, which is ironic considering he himself voted to, to confirm her just eight months ago to the appeals court. Now, what's your message to these Republicans who seem to be settled in their opposition before even speaking with her? I've been around a long time. Unfortunately, we've become so politicized in this country that I wish 
a different Lindsay used to be a close friend. I, uh, I, I just wish they'd uh, give a chance. There's no basis for that assertion, but it's what it is. Yeah. Looking uh, overseas, obviously we're seeing now that Russia uh, has invaded Ukraine in defiance of not only Ukraine's sovereignty, but also warnings from the international community. And yet, at the same time, we have someone like Donald Trump who's come out and praised Putin's savvy and genius uh, just in advance of him attacking uh, Ukraine. And other Republicans have rallied uh, to Putin's side as well. What's your message to Trump and others in light of Putin's attacks? Well, I think uh, I put as much stock in Trump saying that Putin's a genius as I do when he called himself a state of genius. We've seen sanctions get imposed on Putin after Georgia in 2008, after Crimea in 2014, election hacking in 2016. Nothing like this. Look, um, you have two options. Start a third world war, go to war with Russia physically. Or two, um, make sure that uh, a country that acts so contrary to international law ends up paying a price for having done it. And uh, it's, this is, there's no sanction that is immediate. It's not like you can sanction someone and say, you no longer are going to be able to be uh, the president of <laughs> Russia. Um, but yeah, why not? I think these sanctions, Actually. I know, I know these sanctions. How about putting like a bandy on his head? And history. And economic sanctions. And political sanctions. And my goal from the very beginning, was to make sure that I kept all of NATO on the same page. Because the one thing I think that Putin thought he could do was split NATO, create a great aperture for him to be able to walk through. And uh, that hasn't happened, if you notice. It's been complete unanimity. And, uh, and Russia will pay a, a serious price for this short term and long term, particularly long term. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's I not think only it should be booted off of the United in, Nations Security uh, Council. In, on the, in the Pacific, Japan, South Korea, and Australia. I mean, so it's, uh, it, I think if the democracies of the world pull together, I think it, uh, it increases the prospect that uh, we're going to have less chaos rather than more. I think that's the ultimate irony here, is that if Putin's goal ultimately was to, to undermine NATO, uh, and look at what's happening now, NATO is more unified than ever. Well, beyond that, not only NATO is more unified, look at what's going on in terms of Finland, look what's going on in terms of Sweden, look what's going on in terms of other countries. I mean, he's producing the exact opposite effect that he intended. And, um, but... Uh, but all I know is that we have to stay the course with the rest of our allies. And in the meantime, we're supplying defensive weaponry and economic assistance to Ukraine. I think it's important that we stay the course. Yeah. And I think uh, so it's important too that finally uh, we have leadership here that's showing that it's important to focus on protecting democracy as opposed to uh, autocracy. Well, you know, you obviously have heard things I've said <laughs> before because I, uh, I've said at the outset of my uh, presidency 
that there is a genuine, we're at an inflection point in world history. It occurs every three or four or five generations, fundamental change taking place in the world. And the combination of the fundamental change is taking place. For example, you're going to see more change in the next 10 years than we saw in the last 50 years. And it's because of the nature of science and technology and movement. And a lot of the autocrats and, and uh, uh, President Xi, I've spent a lot of time with President Xi of China. He's one who believes that uh, things are changing so rapidly, democracies don't have time to reach consensus. So autocracies. A good lesson in, in, in disproving that theory. And, and speaking of that, moving, looking back inward at home, um, you know, we're in this rare sliver of time where Democrats have unified control of government in the House, the Senate, and the White House. Um, and yet our agenda has been moving slower than we would have liked. What's your message to Democrats who say that that our elected officials can't deliver, and so what's the point of showing up to vote? Well, two things. One, uh, I think the biggest uh, impact on the psychology of the country has been COVID. Almost a million Americans have died from COVID. And, uh, and so I think it's hard for people to get their arms around the fact that we have the fastest growing economy in 40 years, Wages are actually up, not down. Unemployment is the lowest it's been. It's under, under, you know, it's just incredibly low, and it's around the, 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 the three-point range. Um, we find ourselves in a position where it's hard to fully appreciate that when you wake up in the morning, you wonder not whether or not your uncle, aunt, mother, father, son, daughter who has COVID are going to be okay. And as Beck Murthy, the Surgeon General, points out. I think one of the significant things we're going to find in 10 years from now is a phenomenal negative psychological impact that COVID has had on the public psyche. And so you have an awful lot of people who are uh, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, that, that things have gotten so much better for them economically uh, that they are thinking, but how do you get up in the morning and feel happy? happy that everything's all right, even though your job is better, even though you have more income, even though, and then on top of that, because of COVID, supply chains have been so interrupted that now you have inflation. And inflation, is, for example, one third of all inflation a month ago was uh, the price of automobiles. Well, why did they get so high? You know, the little computer chips. They don't, you know, we invented them here in the United States and went to the moon. We don't make them much anymore. We're starting to now. But what happens is when where they're made in, in parts of Southeast Asia and Taiwan and other places, and we don't get them to us quick enough and can't get there, everything slows up. In the same way with, you know, you have uh, from Ukraine to, to, uh, to Russia, you know, wheat and all those, those products. The generic point is that I think that it's uh, we're gaining control of that. We're going to get there. But it really is disquieting for people. But I can tell them that hope is on the way. We have more tools now to deal with COVID than we've ever, ever had. We have, I've ordered millions of pills, over 20 million pills that Pfizer's come up with. Even if you haven't had a vaccination and you get COVID, you take the pill, you're not going to go to the hospital. 
and shots in arms and the ability to have boosters. And so I think we're going to see things changing, but it's difficult, especially for people who have uh, get up in the morning, sit down to breakfast and sit across from an empty chair. In a broader scheme of things, what do you hope that your legacy is going to be? When your grandkids are reading the history books and they read about you, you know, we look and see that Lincoln freed the slaves, FDR's New Deal, Obama had the ACA, Trump had his own legacy, but we'll keep it keep it upbeat here. What, what do you hope that? that well, first of all, I I don't think in terms of legacy. I think in terms of the needs immediately. I ran for I, I ran for president, really and truly, and even my supporters were. Not critical of the thought, the reasons I exposed, I, I, I laid out why I was running. Maybe they weren't such a good idea. I said I was running for three reasons from the very beginning. One, to restore the soul of America, this idea of decency, honor, treating people with respect, literally, literally treating people with respect. And the second reason, rebuild the backbone of the country, which is the middle class, working class folks. This trickle-down theory of economic growth, <coughs> excuse me, has left the uh, left an awful lot of uh, Americans out. And I've never seen a time when the middle class is doing well that the wealthy don't do very well and the poor have a way up. And so that's why I focused on how to change the circumstances and opportunities for working class and middle class people. And the third reason was, which I got a lot of criticism for, was saying I had to unite the country. We can't be a divided country. We can't be sustained and do the things that have to be done if we remain divided based on ethnicity, based on, on politics. It can't work. And so there are the three things I hope my legacy is that I was able to restore some decency and honor to the office. I was able to bring the middle class back to a place where they had real opportunity given an even chance to succeed. And I was able to reconstruct our alliances, which had been frayed so badly internationally, and that I was able to uh, uh, bring people together, um, uh, bring the politics of America together. And, uh, and I think we're making slow progress on some of these things, but I think that's where we're moving. I hope my legacy is that I restored the soul of this country. I was able to give the middle class, and we were able to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not the top down. And then we were able to uh, unify the country again. We'll leave it there, Mr. President. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. You're good. <laughs> So, um, thanks for like 150 thou, man. That's pretty cool. Appreciate that. Let's see what else Brian has to say. Breaking Rudy Giuliani hit with another devastating lawsuit. 
three hours ago. Some major news on a new lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani. But first, remember this moment from June of 2022? And all of a sudden, I feel a shot on my back. <laughs> like somebody shot me. I, I went forward, but luckily I didn't fall down. Lucky I'm a 78-year-old in pretty good shape. Because if I wasn't, I'd have hit the ground and probably cracked my skull. And this was Rudy Giuliani's reaction to that moment. About a third of the way through, I got hit on the back as if a boulder hit me. Uh, it knocked me forward a step or two. Uh, it didn't knock me down, uh, but it hurt tremendously. As if a boulder hit him. A boulder. He could spend a month at a rodeo and still encounter less bullshit than five minutes with Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> now, the guy who patted Giuliani on the back, Daniel Gill, was ultimately arrested and spent 21 hours in jail before being arraigned on misdemeanor charges, including oh, third-degree assault. Those charges were ultimately dropped, but now that man has filed suit against Giuliani, along with the city of Staten Island Wrong and several call. police officers, alleging that they, quote, participated in an unlawful conspiracy to deprive Gill of his right to liberty, his right to speak freely without retribution, and to be free from unreasonable seizures in violation of his rights under the First, Fourth, and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution of the United States. His action seeks monetary damages for false arrest, civil rights conspiracy resulting in false arrest and false imprisonment, defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and negligent infliction of emotional distress. Again, remember that we have video of the encounter. We know that Gil tapped Giuliani on the back. We know that Giuliani then pretended that he was hit by a boulder and stumbled forward, a lie told in service of ensuring that Gil would go to jail and suffer legal consequences for a non-existent crime. For that reason, the suit charges that Gill was, quote, put through the system at Giuliani's urging, quote, they did so despite the fact that the police defendants and other members of the NYPD all stated that they should watch the video before taking any action. Now, in fairness, Gill did make contact with Giuliani by tapping him on the back to get his attention before saying, what's up, scumbag? But to claim yeah. that he was beaten by Gill or hit with a boulder is such an abject lie. Gil's suit also contends that Giuliani welcomed contact while he was there. Quote, Giuliani mingled with the shoppers, who variously shook his hand, patted him on the back and shoulders, tapped him on the arm, and generally told him what a great guy he was. Indeed, a woman is shown on the video affectionately patting and rubbing Giuliani's back, demonstrating at least that minor physical contact was welcome at the event. statement saying, The charges facing Daniel Gill, who has no previous contact with the criminal legal system, are inconsistent with existing law. Our client merely patted Mr. Giuliani who sustained nothing remotely resembling physical injuries without malice to simply get his attention as the video footage clearly showed. Mr. Gill was then followed and threatened by one of Mr. Giuliani's associates who allegedly poked Mr. Gill in the chest and told him that he was going to get locked up. He was then needlessly held by New York police in custody for over 24 hours given Mr. Giuliani's obsession with seeing his name in the press and his demonstrated propensity to distort the truth. We are happy to correct the record on exactly what occurred over the weekend on Staten Island. Even New York City Mayor Eric Adams questioned Giuliani's account, saying, Someone needs to remind former Mayor Giuliani that falsely reporting a crime is a crime. When you look at the video, the guy basically walked by and patted him on the back. It was clear that Giuliani was not punched in the head. It was clear that it didn't feel like a bullet. It was clear that he wasn't about to fall to the ground. I mean, even Newsmax was skeptical. We have that, actually. You were at, a, I guess, a oh, delicatessen of some kind. I'm going to show the people what happened. And you tell me, because... Let me see the video, if you don't mind. Uh, this person with the hand on your back, I gotta I'll be honest, it doesn't look that bad, but I, I understand that looks uh, can be deceiving. I, 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 you know, that, that, was, that was the woman who was rubbing my back, not the guy who hit me. 
that you're watching. So the woman, that woman, uh, gave a statement to the police that the guy hit me so hard that she herself almost fell from the reverberation of it. She's a city worker. She's a second grade detective. That that's that's the lady who uh, helped me. Oh, all right, good. That, that makes sense. Uh, when you're losing Newsmax, you might have just lost the plot. Now, those charges against Gil, again, were ultimately dismissed, but that didn't stop Gil from filing his own civil claim against Giuliani in the city. And given the video evidence of what actually happened, compared with Giuliani's account about what happened, it doesn't look like Giuliani has much legal ground to stand on here. And remember, this newest lawsuit comes in the immediate wake of yet another lawsuit filed against Giuliani. He was also sued this week by former associate Noel Dunphy in New York State, accusing him of assault, harassment, wage theft, and creating a hostile work environment by making racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic remarks while intoxicated. She also says that she recorded some of his behavior as part of her job. Dunphy claims that she was hired by Giuliani in 2019 as his director of business development, and he offered her a $1 million annual salary. However, she says he later told her he couldn't pay her until his divorce was finalized and that he had to keep her employment secret. According to Dunphy, these offers from Giuliani were used as a pretext to coerce her into a sexual relationship. For example, here's a text exchange that he had with her. Rudy, good morning, my love tried to call noel let me quickly shower rudy can i shower with you yep totally normal stuff dunphy suit goes on to allege heavy drinking bigoted tirades and even claims that he had immunity he allegedly offered to sell a pardon to her and anyone else she knew for two million dollars with proceeds being split between him and trump he told her to keep it quiet because the government would find out if it went through normal channels the complaint even says that in february 2019 giuliani told dunphy about trump's plan if he were to lose the 2020 election quote specifically giuliani told miss dunphy that trump's team would claim that there was voter fraud and that trump had actually won the election this plan was discussed at several business meetings with Giuliani and Lev Parnas. To claim that this is stupid Watergate is an understatement. Now, Rudy Giuliani is, of course, disputing and denying all of this, saying he categorically denies all of the allegations of this frivolous complaint. Of course, per usual, it's Giuliani's word against the evidence in the filing with apparently recordings to come. And given what we know about Giuliani's word... I don't think it'll count for much. So obviously much more to come with Giuliani's raft of legal issues, but at the very least, it's nice to finally see the beginning stages of accountability for someone who has lied with impunity for too long. And I, for one, would like to be the first to welcome Giuliani to the finding out phase. Before you go, I need your help. I'm right on the cusp of hitting 2 million subscribers, so please help me grow this channel so the progressive media ecosystem grows by hitting the subscribe button right here on the screen. I also started a Spanish channel so we can finally start regaining some of that lost ground among Spanish speakers, so if you want to help support those efforts, you can hit that subscribe button. And finally, if you listen to podcasts and you want to support mine, you'll find the links to that on the screen as well. Thanks so much for watching. And Giuliani Spence, he was probably drunk and unsteady on his feet. What happened in this case, anyway? I hope he nailed Giuliani. A long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, breaking Democrats for a huge victory. Yeah, that was bombshell Julian career ending news. <laughs>
It's about the two million apiece part of presidential pardons. Okay, surprise bad news for CNN. I want to hear that. Today we're going to talk about Trump's CNN town hall, how it ended up backfiring, and how the media should be covering him. And I interview the congressman yeah. for New York's 10th Congressional District and lead impeachment counsel for Trump's first impeachment, Daniel Goldman, about his thoughts on that town hall, whether he believes the DOJ probes in the Trump are taking too long, his response to the George Santos arrest, and his message to voters on the GOP's obsession with a now-debunked Hunter Biden investigation. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're watching No Lie. <laughs> So there's something that's been bothering me about this CNN town hall with Trump, aside from the obvious of platforming a guy who CNN hosts themselves admitted that they couldn't fact check. But I've been thinking about this a lot, and what's been bothering me is this sense of continued betrayal from our institutions that we've been conditioned to believe actually work. Like, whether naively or not, I've always viewed an outlet like CNN uh, as having the best interest in mind in terms of journalism. But what's become clear to me, again, probably very naively, is that with this town hall, CNN has dropped the pretense that what it is doing is for the benefit of journalism first and foremost. Like, there's not a person on this planet who cannot see what that town hall was. It was a money grab, a ratings grab. And that was bad enough on its own, because it basically lifted the veil on the fact that they are operating very clearly as a for-profit entity. Like, they'll shroud themselves in a cloak of journalistic integrity, blah, 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 but they are a business, they're operating a bu as a business, and when their desire to make money is in conflict with their journalistic principles, they're going to err on the side of money. And I'm sure that there are people watching this saying, yeah, dude, brilliant observation, a business is going to act as a business. And again, I get it. You know, maybe, maybe that's how CNN always operated, and I just couldn't see it. That's certainly possible. But I guess that it's the discretion that they previously aired that fooled me. But in any case, they're certainly not very interested in discretion anymore. And so that was bad enough unto itself, the recognition that this titan of journalism will discard those principles the moment that they need to. But what was immediately worse was this effort by some folks at CNN to then pretend pretend that this was somehow justifiable or necessary. Like, CNN hosted a Trump rally. They filled the audience with Trump supporters. They faced him with a moderator who was not capable of holding him to account. And yet, here's what CNN's CEO, Chris Licks, had to say. He said, quote, You do not have to like the former president's answers, but you can't say that we didn't get them. Caitlin pressed him again and again and made news, made a lot of news, and that is our job. While we may all have been uncomfortable hearing people clapping, that was also an important part of the story because those folks represent a large swath of America. America was very well served by what we did last night. And beyond that, here's a snippet of what Anderson Cooper had to say along those same lines. Now, many of you think CNN shouldn't have given him any platform to speak, and I understand the anger about that, giving him the audience, the time, I get that. But this is what I also get. The man you were so disturbed to see and hear from last night, that man is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And according to polling, no other Republican is even close. That man you were so upset to hear from last night, he may be president of the United States in less than two years. And that audience that upset you, that's a sampling of about half the country. They are your family members, your neighbors, and they are voting. And many said they're voting for him. Now, maybe you haven't been paying attention to him since he left office. Maybe you've been enjoying not hearing Republican from him, thinking party. it can't happen again. Some investigation is going to stop him. 
Well, it hasn't so far. So if last night showed anything, so it showed rally. it can happen again. It is happening again. He hasn't changed, and he is running hard. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? Talk about tortured responses. Yeah. Ought to parade CNN around as if they put on a symposium on thermonuclear physics. It was a Trump rally. They made a Trump rally. This wasn't yeah. some historic news event. It was a bunch of Trump supporters who fucking applauded when Trump attacked a woman who one day earlier he was found liable of having sexually abused a bunch of Trump supporters who applauded when Trump mocked CNN's own moderator. So CNN can dress this pig up in all the lipstick in the world, but it is still a pig. And the worst part is that everyone knows it, and yet still CNN is pretending. The only thing worse than this naked ratings grab is them playing make-believe and pretending that it wasn't what we all know it was. And here's the worst part for CNN. Yes, they got 3.3 million viewers. Yes, that is like six times what they normally get. But according to Brian Stelter, who's a former CNN uh, reporter, quote, the network returned to its usual ratings levels on Thursday, the day after, averaging 538,000 viewers in prime time. No retention from the night before. In other words, they netted no long-term benefits, no new viewers, no swath of disaffected right-wing Fox watchers, just a torched reputation for some fleeting one-night event that didn't even exceed viewership for the last town hall that Joe Biden did. I cannot imagine a planet on which this thing was worth it. The fact is that there is a way to cover Trump, and first and foremost, it's to make sure you're doing it in a way that you're going to push back on his lies. And there are people who can do that in real time. Jonathan Swan did it in Zaxio's interview. I understand it's not easy. And look, if someone isn't able to fact check in real time, that's fine. But the solution here is simple. Do not put yourself in a situation where you're going to allow yourself to get steamrolled by the guy. That's all. If you know that he's going to use whatever platform you give him to spread this information and spew hateful rhetoric and make people unsafe and incite violence, then don't do it. We already know what the natural conclusion of platforming his lies are. The guy incited an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. People died that day. We don't have to sit around here and pretend that he is some disciple of God and that when he speaks, we have no choice but to listen. He's just a run-of-the-mill, white-collar criminal who's conned his supporters into believing his lies. That's all. And we don't have to willfully participate in his schemes because of some misguided allegiance to norms. This is not a typical situation, and we cannot respond to it with typical solutions. And I don't say that being biased in favor of the left. I say that being biased in favor of democracy. This should be beyond partisan politics. Donald Trump is an existential threat to democracy and the future of this country. And if you're treating him the same way that you treated, like, Barack Obama, then you are part of the problem. And CNN and other news networks who seek to normalize this guy are absolutely part of that problem. So if ever there was a pitch for independent media or progressive media, this is it. Because after what we've been through as a country, if news outlets are still guided by both sidesism, then they are missing the plot. So I appreciate you watching, and if you're not subscribed, please subscribe to this channel. And hopefully the defections in that audience that CNN is seeing right now sends a pretty clear message that we're not going to be a party to these attacks on our democracy just because certain outlets want to profit from it. Here's a preview of my interview with Congressman Daniel Goldman. Do you feel that the DOJ probe into both the classified documents and the insurrection on January 6th are taking too long? Or judging by what little public information we have, is this an appropriate amount of time? Because, you know, like you said, for, for, for the rest of us on the outside, there's really no insight into how long this should take. But 
you take the George Santos indictment, for example, and at, at one point in his rambling screed, he did say, how is it possible that I can be indicted so quickly? And that was the only part that I agreed with, because it does seem like in an instance where you do have this low-level, albeit very clownish, uh, congressman in George Santos, and when there is a problem... There was an indictment. There were those 13 charges that were passed down relatively quickly. And I only say relatively because the only schema we have for this stuff is that apparently it takes years and years and years for any prosecution to be completed. So, so again, I guess going back to that question, do you think this is an appropriate amount of time or do you feel like it is taking too long? Well, I, I think it took a little too long to begin the investigation into Donald Trump and his associates for overturning the election. Um, but that was for good reason, which was that the Department of Justice was focused on the violent insurrectionists who invaded the Capitol uh, on January 6th. And they wanted to dismantle people who were dangerous to the public safety and yeah, dangerous to the public through violence, um, and such as a 3% Danger, Can't get more dangerous to public problems. safety than that. So there is that uh -huh. element of it, which I think delayed the start of that intensive investigation. But it's very important to remember um, that a criminal case does not brought after you have one witness come in and give you incriminating evidence. And then you say, oh, all right, we got it. Let's go charge tomorrow. And I think a lot of people after watching the January 6th hearings felt very much like that should happen. But as powerful and, and excellent as those hearings were, they were small snippets of much longer depositions and testimony without any cross-examination, without any consideration of the rules of evidence that apply in a court of law and without any legal standard that they needed in order to prove a case such as beyond a reasonable doubt as you would have in a criminal case. So when you are actually investigating a criminal case, you need to understand the full universe of witnesses and what they would say. And every time you interview a witness, they often give you another lead and something else to track down. Plus, we know that a lot of the close associates of Donald Trump and Donald Trump himself are putting up legal blocks to testimony from others that have to be litigated through the courts. So it is important, I think, for all of your viewers and listeners to understand that criminal investigations generally do take a long time, and especially the conspiracy to overturn the election where there are so many different prongs of that effort and so many different witnesses. On the contrary, what I was struck by the George Santos indictment is how simple it was and how simple and flagrant and brazen his schemes were. This was an incredibly unsophisticated crime <laughs> where essentially you get the documents, you get the bank documents, you get the other records by subpoena, and you can pretty much put together a, a strong case based on those documents alone. Perhaps there wasn't a couple of inside witnesses that were able to provide some context to those documents. But they didn't even address, I think, many of the, the sig more significant issues that have been called into question about George Santos, including the $700,000 that he gave to his own campaign. So what I view the Santos indictment to be is an expedited indictment based on the easiest charges to prove. Uh, and there may be more investigation to come after that. But because he's a sitting congressman, 
uh, they wanted to move quickly. To check out the full interview with Daniel Goldman, click the thumbnail right here on the screen or check out the interviews playlist on my YouTube channel. You can also find the link to the audio version of this podcast on this screen, so feel free to subscribe, a link to my Spanish channel so that we can reach Spanish speakers, and of course a link to this channel to see more of my content like this. This is how we crush MAGA and win. Expert reveals key to defeating Trump with the most brilliant strategy. Burn the boats 23 hours ago. I think we're giving them a little too much credit having campaigned for 50 years for this moment that they have no plan to actually capitalize on. And I can't think of a better indicator of the intellectual hollowness of the right today and the GOP in particular. I'm Ken Harbaugh. What could possibly go wrong? And this is Burn this the Boats. This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. Our guest today is Mila Atnos. Mila is the host of Future Hindsight, a podcast about civic engagement that gives listeners action items so that they can better participate in our democracy. Mila, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate inviting me onto the show. Yeah, of course. Your podcast, which I, I love, is in its sixth season, and you've had some amazing guests, especially lately, and, and I so appreciate the show's hopeful tone, but when you began hosting Future Hindsight in the wake of Trump's election in 2016, did you ever imagine that we would be staring down that same barrel again, that in spite of having all pulled together and beaten Trump, he would be back? How does that feel? That's a good question. How does it feel? Well, I think it feels both slightly desperate, right? But also at the same time, I think, sounds almost cheesy, but I think there is a hopefulness in here, which is that even though uh, he continues to be on the scene, I think people continue to be motivated to turn out. I think when you look at uh, voters last election cycle, when it comes to abortion rights, I think people continue to, you know, just like Republicans continue to, to dip into that fountain of, of, you know, Trumpism. I think so are liberals, you know, although I will say, you know, li you know, Trump is not on the ballot last fall in 2022. Um, and a lot of people ran against uh, Trumpist candidates or against Trumpism. Uh, and in some senses, I think that wasn't always necessarily working, but it continues to motivate the base. Do you see your role as activating like-minded people, engaging Democrats and, and getting them to turn out? Or, or do you think there is still room for persuasion? I, I always worry about that in how we message, because you certainly have to do the first thing, but in order to build bridges, in order to get to a better future that, that I want for my kids, we also have to do some 
some persuading, right? That's a good question of whether we should be doing persuading. I think what I've discovered in the five years that I've been doing this podcast is that political leanings are like a belief system. And you're not really going to persuade the other side. I think that's very, very hard. Having said that, I think it's really important to continue to have open dialogue. And I think if you go into any conversation thinking that you're going to persuade the other person uh, of your own viewpoint, I think that's um, I think that's a dead end. But I think if you can come to the conversation and say, let's have an open conversation, and I really want to understand your point of view, and I hope that you can also understand mine. I think that's that's the best you can do. And I think if you can approach it that way, then I think you can see each other's humanity. I like to say that um, if you can just see each other's humanity, I think you're in a better place because then you can you can find a way, you can find the places where you still have common ground. And I think from there you can pursue perhaps a third path. I'd love to hear more about that third path because in American politics today there's two choices and you had this great blog post recently about seeing the humanity and people on the other side of, of that divide which is all good and well but when it comes to existential elections like we're facing in 2024 what is the what is the benefit of, of seeing the humanity of the other side if we wind up with an authoritarian president who is, once again, trying to destroy democracy. Yeah, well, so I would say the path to 2024 is still relatively long. It's uh, now April of 2023, so there's time. Um, and uh, I think we can't really predict, we can't predict the future. So who knows what's going to happen between now and then. But speaking of the third path, I think one way to do this is to get around policies that people really can agree on. For example, I think even though people want to dog infrastructure, everybody benefits from better infrastructure. And even though Republicans in, in the Senate didn't vote for it, they love to come home and say, you know, we got some federal dollars to build highways in our state. And so I think if people could just be less hypocritical about it, I think people can rally around things that really do work and really do affect everyday And point out the hypocrisy. Everyday, everyday lives. Shame them, basically. For every example like that, though, something like Republican infrastructure that both sides are able to get behind because there isn't the as deep or powerful of, of a cultural element, there are 10 other issues <clears throat> that, broadly speaking, Americans agree upon, but because of how our, our politics are structured, because of how extremists are empowered in primaries nothing happens and this poll just came out i'm going to flip over to it about and it was a fox news poll about gun reform and the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor of doing something background checks for all gun sales 87 percent. this is a fox news poll legal age of 21 to buy all guns 81 percent. 30-day waiting period which is anathema to the the right to the NRA, 77%. When you have numbers like that and still nothing can get done, I mean that has got to undermine belief in in the power of democracy to actually affect change on things that 
that matter, things that are literally taking kids' lives. A hundred percent, I agree. I think uh, it it definitely erodes our belief and our faith in democracy. And I would say, and I know that you have spoken to many people about this, that the secret is to turn out in big numbers. And we're still really short on having big voter turnout, right? Um, I think the only antidote to gerrymandering and voter suppression is to go out and vote. And, of course, unfortunately, gerrymandering and voter suppression work exactly as they're designed, which is to say it reduces the number of people who come out and vote. But I, I would say um, the immediate antidote to this feeling of things are just not working is to really pay attention to state and local politics, because there is where we have the lowest number of voter turnout, but actually there is where you have the most power. If, you know, you, you everywhere, in every election cycle in recent in the recent past, you hear news of people winning election, winning elections by 18 votes or 112 votes or something really tiny. And if you were to think about that and say, wait, I have at least three friends that I can compel to go out and vote. And if we just do a little bit of a voting circle, we could make a difference. You know, I had um, Daniel Squadron on the show on Future Hindsight. He works with the States Project, and he was saying that basically in the last cycle in state and local elections, they raised an additional $60 million, six zero, which is a tiny amount of money when you think about federal politics, running for Congress, running for Senate, or even gubernatorial races, right? But $60 million made all the difference in getting people to elect better people at the state and local level. I mean, look at Michigan. That was one of the states that they worked in. And now that's a trifecta for the Democrats, right? And the thing is that I think at this point, whatever your political persuasion may be, I think people have to point to the policy successes of administrations that really delivered for the people. You describe that as voting close to home. Uh, I love that phrase. And we're seeing the power of that. We just saw it recently in, in South Carolina, and I believe it was Nebraska, where they turned back these draconian anti-abortion proposals in their, in their state legislatures. But on, on the other hand, you have uh, super majorities in states like Tennessee. You have minoritarian rule in states like, uh, I believe, Wisconsin, where you have a purple, maybe slightly blue state, and the state house has managed to stay in the hands of Republicans through repression. Do you really believe that massive, uh, my, my fear with counting on, on massive turnout is that you have overwhelming numbers of supporters for your handful of Democratic representatives, but you still have a red light legislature. I mean, I see that in Tennessee's future, right? You have the Tennessee three who are going to be going back as long as they want to because they have established themselves as voices for their constituents, for the whole country, really. Um, the Tennessee Republicans just don't care. They just don't care because of how the system is set up. That's a totally legitimate point, right? But the idea that you're not then going to try to turn out your voters would be also wrong. And the other thing about that is 
a lot of these state and local races are uncontested. Uh, and that happens in, in both states uh, that are, you know, overwhelmingly blue or red, let's say. You know, there are lots of places in New York, for example, that are uncontested, only a Democrat runs. Uh, depending on where, where in New York, of course. So if you're in upstate New York, then only a Republican runs and there's no Democrat. And I think that's really bad for democracy. You know, I think if you don't have both parties running for any given seat, it's really not a contest. And I think that probably happens in Tennessee. I mean, I haven't looked at the at all of their races, but I would be surprised if there is a Democrat running for every race that's up for state and local okay, legislature. Do you think the Republican Party can return to any semblance of normalcy? Will they be a party that at some point in the future can operate in uh, just raw populism by sending informed voters Expert to reveals the polls, key to defeating Trump with hopefully the most brilliant to stem this tide of authoritarianism? Actually, I'm a big fan of mandatory voting. Um, we had, uh, yeah, I thought we had E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport on. They wrote that book, 100% Democracy, the case for universal civic duty voting. Uh, great book, very short. Talks a lot about Australia. Uh, but the idea is that uh, in Australia, as you know, you don't actually have to vote for a candidate. You can just write a Mickey Mouse if you wanted to. Uh, and also you can say none of the above. You don't want to write any candidate in. But it becomes this cultural event where people turn out and after they vote I think they have these barbecues and eat sausages um, in Australia is my understanding I mean I've never been to election day in Australia but the idea that you make this sort of a cornerstone of your democracy is totally possible I think in this country I mean people talk about you know culture change and oh you know this is not possible or that's not possible but our culture has changed in this country over de over the decades. I think people today are much more, let's say, pro-gun than they used to be 30 years ago, you know, um, and from people that maybe wouldn't have spoken in, in those ways 30 years ago, but do today. And I think this can also be changed about um, the culture around voting. I mean, I think we're not these helpless agents that, you know, can't figure out a way forward, you know. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of a lot of possibility for people to think about voting as something that is as um, routine as paying your taxes or getting your car checked or you know getting your car inspection, which is a total pain, right? To do every year to get your car inspected. But if you can do that, you can go and vote. Also, I think you have to make it easier to vote. I mean, there are many, many places where it is easier to vote. I think like Oregon, Washington State, in these places where you have automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, if you make it easy, you have something like 70% voter turnout. Well, that Australian model for civic engagement is probably one I, I could get behind, but voting and elections have just become so divisive and high stakes in this country that I sometimes I, I sometimes long for the days when politics was boring. I mean, as engaged as I am and as existential as I think this fight is, do you ever miss the the, the Clinton or the pre-Clinton era when, you know, politics compared to now was just, it just seemed mundane. 
Well, I don't know if it was mundane in those days. Um, I think some people compared would beg to, to differ. Was... Like, compared to now. Well, I think it depends on who you were in those days. I would say yeah. that uh, politics uh, anywhere, but especially in this country, is always high stakes. And I think what a lot of people miss is that whatever happens in the United States is followed around the world and that there is fallout everywhere from what happens here. Uh, and so I think... If you think of yourself as somebody who can be um, a high-stake participant in politics, you know, that your voice really matters, I think you would approach your choices in a way uh, that makes you feel more empowered. And that's a hum- almost, um, how can I say, it sounds almost like I'm, I'm encouraging you to think that uh, you have more power than you have. But I think a lot of people think that they don't have enough power. A lot of people think, oh, I voted and still there's this silly outcome. Why is that still not happening? Well, it's because only 23% of New Yorkers voted, for example, in the mayoral election. You know, one of my favorite um, anecdotes that I like to tell is that um, I love to ask yellow cab drivers if they voted for mayor. And nine of ten times, they will say no. And then... Also, at the same time, they'll tell me, but I voted for Biden. And it's like, that's great. You voted for Biden, but you really should have voted for mayor because you, as a cab driver, it makes a huge difference for you. But they don't understand that. They don't know that it makes a difference to them, you know, close, voting close to home. And so I think if we could, like, talk about that constantly, and, and if you don't talk about it constantly, then nobody will hear it, you know. I feel like a broken record often. But if you could just impress upon people that, if you want to make change, you have to vote. There, that's the beginning. And if you don't win this time, there's another time. And I think this is where Republicans are very good. They're in it for the long haul. I mean, look at the Dobbs decision. This was a decision that was 50 years in the making. They never gave up. They just kept at it. And I think that people who believe in any cause, have to be the same way. Any little difference makes a difference. Any little thing is good enough and is important in the big scheme of things. What role does anger play? One of the hallmarks of your show is just how level-headed your conversations with guests are, but there's this Augustinian quote that, that anger is the first step to courage. And when I see real, especially sudden change happening, it often seems to be the result of angry people having experienced too much. You see the Moms Demand Action uh, movements in state houses now across the country. I wonder if there's a way to tap into that peacefully, of course, but to channel it for for change. Uh, and I'm, I'm asking you because that is that is very off-brand for your show. Uh, yes, that's a good question. Well, I am a big believer in using anger as a motivator, actually. Uh, but I'm not an angry person on the show. I feel like that doesn't work very well. <laughs> but, but I agree. I think when you've had enough, that's when you step up and say, you know what? I just can't take it anymore. Why? Why? Why do people think I'm just going to take this lying down? And I think 
When it comes to the Dobbs decision, I think a lot of women are angry. In fact, a lot of men are angry because abortion rights works for everyone. You know, I had a conversation uh, recently with um, two men. I was at a lunch with, you know, their wives and their sons, etc. Uh, so it was like a family lunch. And we were talking about abortion rights. And they did not understand that this would also prevent miscarriage care. And so... They said, oh, but there's an exception for that. And I said, no, there isn't. You know, you have to basically wait until you have sepsis. And one of the men, he just said, what? But then, by then, you're at death's door. And I said, yes, exactly. This is what we're talking about. And I think when you're not really having these conversations in private rooms, because it's just in the news, it's just one more thing, it's so annoying, you know, you don't want to talk about that, I'm too busy for this, whatever, whatever. Um, that's when you don't have this opportunity to say, listen, this is incredibly extreme. It's not that uh, we say, you know, you can have, as, as the right likes to say, an abortion on demand for, you know, as a way to have birth control. But it's really because a lot of people require this health care. And most people who end up having a miscarriage are people who really wanted to have a baby. And then they need to get abortion care as a result in order to stay healthy. You said with respect to the Dobbs decision that Republicans are, are in it for the long haul. And I understand that perspective retrospectively looking at their 50-year campaign to end Roe v. Wade. But on the other hand, they've had 50 years to plan for this moment, and their plan is falling apart. It, it appears to me that they have no plan for the future when it comes to this issue because their measures are so extreme. They're alienating a vast majority of voters. Maybe their plan is permanent minoritarian rule, but that is really the only way they can cement the gains that, that they won post-Roe, because state legislatures and voters are rebelling. What in the world were they thinking? I heard this many years ago now. I think this was maybe in the 80s or the 90s, and we had a discussion about, you know, Republicans becoming increasingly anti-abortion. Because I think for a long time they were pro-abortion rights. This is why Roe versus Wade was passed in 1971, because a lot of people said, you know, we really need this because women are dying. And uh, this person said to me, you know, being anti-abortion is a gift that keeps on giving. It's never going to get done. But in the meantime, it motivates the base and turns out voters. And so now here we are, <laughs> you know, Roe was overturned. And now I think they had, they didn't actually think it was going to happen. And, and they are a little bit surprised, if I may say so myself. And that's why they don't have a concrete plan. I think we're giving them a little too much credit having campaigned for 50 years for this moment that they have no plan to actually capitalize on. And I can't think of a better indicator of the intellectual hollowness of the right today and the GOP in particular. I agree with you, of course, that they wanted to win this forever and that their plan has always been to control women, basically, and to control, you know, one subset of the population. But I would say 
Um, well, let me rephrase that. It's actually, it's more like this. Uh, you know, they believe in the patriarchy and that it's top down. And at the top of the patriarchy, it's white men. And they determine who gets to do what. Um, and that goes for everybody underneath the pyramid, you know. So uh, I think it's a little bit more like the way that I understand it. It's like, well, if you are at the top of the pyramid, you got to decide if my wife, you know, is going to have abortion, is going to have an abortion because it's good for her and it's good for her health, or if my daughter is, or whatever. But other people don't have that privilege, so I want to make sure that nobody else gets the privilege. It's really more like that in my mind, or that's the way that I understand it in any case, and maybe that's inaccurate. Uh, but if you look at the current trends, I think, that's really what they want. They want, you know, one specific class of people to be at the top and then for everybody else to be underneath them in whatever shape or form and that could be uh in a serving class or you know just the people i mean if you look at these if you look at these um laws that allow young teenagers to work i just think what's happening who do they think is going to do these jobs and I mean, we know this, of course, it's going to be poor people, and poor people are primarily people of color. But of course, there are also lots of white people in rural areas who are going to have to do the same thing. And I think there's this um, deep misunderstanding across the board that what hurts other people hurts us too. What's truly scary is that they are enacting that vision in parts of the country and in spite of the massive pushback especially in in urban areas this vision is actually being cemented in large swaths of the country you had a guest on your show recently who was talking about the the slow civil war and i'm growing increasingly afraid that we are dividing in such a way that that our, our values are being geographically organized and you have parts of the country in which Democrats are going to be afraid to go to and certainly their rights will be impinged upon if they if they go there I mean my daughter is graduating from high school this year and I can't tell you how many of her classmates are thinking about colleges based on the rights they will have in that state I don't think that's something um, that we have thought about for a long time in this country. It certainly happened in the past, but you have to go back to a time in American history that is really terrifying. And the fact that we're at the doorstep of that again is is alarming. I would argue, as my guest did about the Civil War, that we are already in these terrifying times, that we are not at the doorstep. We're, we're in it, <laughs> you know, because these skirmishes between... Um, far-right groups and uh, Antifa, they happen like every weekend, you know, uh, and the fact that we have mass shootings that are politically motivated are also at an unprecedented number, you know, not just politic, not just personal vengeance, you know, not, not the, uh, the post office, uh, the, yes, the post office employee who got fired. A lot of them are politically motivated. And so I think uh, if you think about it that way, we're already in these terrifying times. And 
it's the kind of thing where we have to be honest about that. And it's really difficult to be honest about that because it's incredibly uncomfortable, right? You don't want to say we're already in a slow civil war because that makes you want to cry, <laughs> you know, and you think, oh, my God, it's really it's I really can't make a difference. But I don't believe that everything is lost. I, I do believe that there's a lot of fight in in the heart and the spirit of American people. Um, I think we need to, as everyday people, as politicians, speak plainly about the stakes, because I think people are afraid to do that. You know, when we, when we think about uh, wanting to be politically correct, or in today's term, to be quote, woke, which I don't even fully know what that means, but in my mind, I, I, I substitute political correctness for wokeness, let's say. And that's maybe the closest, the closest uh, approximation. But I would say that if you're mealy-mouthed about what you believe in, then nobody understands what you're saying. And then nobody understands the stakes. And I think you need to make that plain. And only then can we have the opportunity to get people excited. You know, this idea that you're sort of like a middle-of-the-road candidate and, uh, you know, you're, quote, more reasonable than the other candidate. Well, nobody cares. <laughs> you know, that's not going to get people excited to go out and vote for you. And it doesn't, it doesn't fit the times either as, as deep into this crisis as we are. What gives you the most hope, not just going into... 2024 but looking at the at the road beyond what gives me the most hope is that there are so many people who have dedicated their lives to making their immediate circle better you know in the work that i've done in the last five years and in interviewing people who are civically engaged i am always so heartened by their by the dedication of the people that I interview and the people that they work with and the people that they engage, everyday people. You know, especially when you talk to people who are, who are um, engaged and turning out the vote, whether that's volunteering for candidates or working as a poll worker or uh, just, you know, standing on the side of the road <laughs> to get you to find out what's happening with the candidate. You know, uh, my older son was uh, volunteering for the one of the district attorney candidates in Manhattan, and he literally stood next to subway stations and talked to people about the candidates that were on the ballot. And of course, he volunteered for one. But what he found is that he talked to a lot of people who didn't even know who was on the ballot who didn't know what the difference was, who didn't know when election day was, because the primary, you know, was in June, and so he was right around June always out there in order to make sure that his candidate uh, was going to be uh, on the ballot. But I think when you hear that, that people are willing to have these conversations with strangers, I think that's incredibly hopeful. Yeah, me too, and I'm... So glad to hear that your son is out there. This is an incredibly unfair burden to put on a whole generation, but I think that Gen Z cohort is going to save us. Yeah, I hope they will. But, you know, 
I, I think everybody in this country is paying attention, actually, to the politics. And that's one of the reasons it feels so divisive, because so many people are in it. Amelia, it's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey Midas Mighty, love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Try something else. Freaking. Jason Bridget gets to respond to Fox's violet Republican donor drops bomb on his own party. Yeah, the the lot of donors like fake donors, and they're saying that if Trump runs, they're not going to back him. In fact, uh, Rupert Murdoch said that basically, and he's not he's not supporting Trump. Trump lost his effort to avoid prosecution blows up in his face a month ago. Um, let's see what else? Subscriptions. Hmm. Let's see. Tampa Bay Hotel Fire. South Carolina House nearing vote on Cedar Heights abortion ban. Yeah. 
All these motherfuckers. options should be forced to resign. Gosling, they know the flames of divinity unveiling the mythical realms of Mexico, America. Wow, it's a beautiful image. I want to put that on a purse. The dragon. The flames of the divinity. mysteries of the Mayan mix. Nine hours ago. Human mysteries of the Mayan mix. This is temporally and spatially far flung as the Mesopotamians, Mayans, and Easter Islanders likely came to ruin by expanding beyond the capacity of their environments to sustain them. William E. Reese. The mouth of the enchanted well. Chi. Mouth. Itza. Enchanted well. Chichen Itza is the most sacred city on the Yucatan Peninsula. At the top of the step pyramid, there is an opening that goes through the pyramid and drops deep into the earth. Should someone fall, he will travel the nine steps of the underworld and the thirteen steps to the heaven world. Who are these people who came to the shrine? Medical research indicates that the most plausible origin of the Maya is Siberia. This tropical rainforest would seem to be the most unlikely habitat for someone of an Eskimo Aleut ancestry. Yet, many, many centuries ago, these hardy people walked across the prehistorical land bridge between northeastern Asia and current-day Alaska. This street was called Beringia. There were three migrations, two of which were north-south migrations to and from South America, especially Chile, and a third that represented a follow-up migration to the mainland of North America. Mesoamerica is the term used to delineate the separating North America from South America. Mesoamerica is specifically an historical region and one of the six areas in which ancient civilizations arose. Mesoamerica is also one of the three cultural areas in which writing was developed during ancient times, the others in Mesopotamia and China. Highly sophisticated cultures grew from that, as well as the establishment of trade and government. In the Mayan civilization, archaeologists have identified three distinct periods. Pre-Classic, 2000 BC to 250 AD. Classic, 
250 AD to 900 AD, post-classic, 950 AD to 1539 AD. Quiche means many trees. The land of this pre-Columbian society is replete with trees. Quiche also refers to the language of these people. The Yucatan at that time was a wondrous land full of mountains, forests, rivers, valleys, and plains extending from the Pacific to the Atlantic. It basically encompasses the Yucatan Peninsula and the modern-day countries of Guatemala, Central Mexico, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Honduras, and Belize. The Maya civilization was founded around 8000 BC, but their written history started in 2000 BC. They used glyphs, like the hieroglyphics of the ancient Egyptians. The official end of the Mayan civilization, if you will, in 950 AD when the cities were abandoned and all that was left of the Maya were a few scattered villages in the rainforest or along the sandy coasts. In the year 1523, the Spaniards invaded. Those unfamiliar Spanish rushed in, saying, Receive your bearded guests, the armies of God, and lifted up their muskets. Historians indicate that these Quiche people had never seen such violent weapons that thundered at them like the wrath of God. They had never seen beards before either, as they didn't have them. Neither did the Asians or Native Americans, also from the racial root race from which the Maya descended. Archaeologists and scholars often speak of the end times when the Maya left their civilization and went out to parts unknown. So the Maya knew the end time was coming. It was written in their codes of belief held from the time of their ancestors, as predicted in their myths. The death of the first men is a segment of the Mayans' antique record called the Bupulva that reflects this ominous prophecy. A copy of it was tracked down by Dr. C. Scherzer of Austria in 1854. As the older leaders sensed that the day of their death grew nigh, they reflected upon what they had seen when they first saw the sun, and then they parted one by one. Then suddenly they were gone. When they abandoned their settlements, it was long before the time that marks the first invasions of the Spanish. This armed intrusion spanned 300 years, but altered the whole texture and nature of the region. There are many natural wells found in Yucatan that appear to be like endless pits. The Maya believed that these cenotes were entrances to the underworld, or world of the lower gods. Chichen Itza is a famous archaeological site built in the terminal post-classic period. It lies on the eastern Yucatan Peninsula. The architectural complex contains many more temples and points of interest that aren't all in the typical areas designated for tourists. Some aren't open to the public as yet. The Osario Pyramid is the most famous of the visited structures. Chichen Itza was the last area built before the civilization entirely collapsed. It became very active before these predicted end times. The Mayan end times were believed to have been the precursors to the end of the world.
Prior to the year 2000, the Y2K phenomena arose. Some were concerned that their computers would cease to record dates and times, as all calculations depended upon the last two digits of a year, and the rest was assumed to be 1900-something. 90, for example, meant 1990, and 99 meant 1999. Then what? Everyone wondered. The end times, meaning the beginning of the end. Representations of the Mayan calendar were sold worldwide during 1999 because so many indicated that it predicted the end of the world. The Mayan calendar, however, predicted the end of their time, not everyone's. The culture, art, architecture, society, lifestyles, and literature all grew from the roots of the Mayan beliefs and myths. Despite the fact that all the people who lived in the known world at the time were often continents away from each other, the Mayan myths bear striking similarities to those of other cultures, continents apart. Following our thought belief system that merit notice. The Mayans believe that after death, a human first descends to an underworld called Chibaba and can move upward until reaching the unbound happiness of paradise, which they call the Tenoranshan. According to the ancient Egyptians, after death, the human descends to the underworld ruled by the god Osiris and undergoes judgment before ascending to the land of plenty in the afterlife. In the Christian creed, it is stated that Christ descended to the dead, then arose and descended into paradise, as will his followers. The Hebrews call the underworld Sheol, into which one passes and is judged. If deemed worthy, the person is taken into paradise after the coming of the messianic age. In the center of the Maya world stood a magnificent tree that connected the earth to the underworld, Chibalba, and to the thirteen layers of Tamoanshan. In the Bible and Jewish tradition, it is called the Tree of Life, and grew in the center of the Garden of Eden. In the Yucatan Peninsula, it is associated with the Cyber Tree, a very straight-trunked tree which reaches tremendous heights. The white flowers of the tree, the Maya believed, represented the human soul and were called Saknicnal, meaning white flower. In the ancient Mayan language, Nik means flower, Sak means white. Nal, usually used in combination with other words, has to do with the gods. The roots of this tree, the Maya said, go out into four directions like a compass. They further stated that this is how the universe is ordered. Scientifically, that is how the Earth is oriented, latitude and longitude. Very often the Mayan gods and goddesses were seen in duality. The duality of these beings is reminiscent of the yin-yang symbolism of Tao philosophy. It provides dynamism to a belief system, creating a positive tension of two opposite but complementary forces. Without the light, there can be no shadow, but if there is only shadow, light has no meaning. Two deities operate together like male and female and create beauty and meaning from the interaction. For example, the deities Chimukane and Chipleak were creators of the human races. 
the maize gods were Yun Kax and Hunnal Ye that produced growth of their life-bestowing crop. Arakan was the god of the heaven world, Tamawanshan, and Apuch was the god of the underworld, or Chibalba. Artistically, Apuch has a partially open mouth with teeth, and sometimes resembles a skeleton with prominent teeth. Arakan has a partially open mouth, but without teeth, and the oral opening is friendlier in appearance, if you will. Openings were associated with entrances to the world beyond the earth world, like the mouth of the enchanted well. There were thirteen creator gods, the most noted of whom was Hurakan, the god of the heaven world, also called the wind god. Hurakan is a derivative for the English word, hurricane. He was considered the heart of the sky. When Hurakan called out the word, earth, the earth appeared. Hurakan consulted with the other creator gods, and they decided upon the animals and humans. In the Americas, the jaguar is at the top of the food chain. It is more powerful than a leopard, and the most powerful of the mammal predators. This magnificent beast was represented in Mayan mythology frequently. Balan was the jaguar god of the Chibalba and one of the group of gods come to protect humans. In the magnificent ancient city of Chichen Itza, there still stands the Temple of Jaguars with a lower temple behind the great platform devoted to the eagles. The eagle in Mayan culture stands for authority and control. The eagle knights were highly skilled archers who wore eagle feathers to symbolize their high status in the military. The Mayan rulers were compared to the eagles. The creation myth and the birth of the Mayan people. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, God first created light. In the Mayan tradition, Huracan had with him two other creator gods, and together they gave rise to light, Kakula Huracan, lightning, and Chipi Kakula, lightning flash. However, when it came to the birth of humankind, they made three attempts. Humans weren't as easy to create, apparently. On the first attempt, humans were made of mud and didn't last. The second attempt yielded wooden mannequins, but they had no souls and were turned into howlers, monkeys. On the third attempt, they used corn, that is, maize. The people made of corn were pleasing to all the gods. Maze. Hmm. It is no wonder that the Maya believed they were descendants of the corn people, the fruition of a successful creation of mankind. It was grown as early as the year 2000 BC. Maize was grown in the lowlands of Puk and Tetan Basin, both located in today's Guatemala. The land was very fertile. Because maize could only be grown in small patches, a system of planting the corn involved raised terraces. This technique prevented the fertile soil from running off and evaded erosion. It is interesting to note that this method was mirrored in their architecture. For example, their pyramids consist of a series of steps or terraces, if you will. Maize was their staple crop. It could be used for eating, of course, but also for producing cornmeal. 
the silk from the ears, along with the leaves, were used for making baskets and hats. Maize was also useful for feeding livestock, although they didn't have a wide variety of livestock until later periods. The Maize Gods The chief maize god was Yunkax and Hunalye. Yunkax was often portrayed as having an ear of corn for his own ear. The maize god was usually of a male and female god who gave birth to the hero twins, Punapu and Chabalanke. They were heroes because they saved their people from the ravages of earthquakes and risked their lives to do so. Anapu, so the story goes, lost his arm in the battle with the negative forces. Earthquakes were frequent in Mesoamerica at that time. They not only killed people, but destroyed their crops. Myths as Teaching Tools Like the fiction books of today, including those tales told to children, there were always morals to the stories. In the tales, people see their own weaknesses and strengths mirrored in the tales, along with the consequences of misdeeds and the rewards for good behavior. In a myth told about the divine hero twins, as heard above, the tale tells a two-pronged story, suggesting that one must responsibly raise the maize crop. The divine twins were now old enough to undertake labor in the field, and their first task was the clearing of the maize plantation. They possessed magic tools which could work the field without the twins. However, the twins were expected to monitor the work of their tools in case of interference from other factors like wind. Instead of guiding their magic tools, though, the twins went hunting. Upon returning at night, they smeared their faces and hands with dirt so the Trumokane, their grandmother, might be deceived into imagining that they had been hard at work in the maize field. However, when the crops grew, the entire field was full of weeds. While the twins were away, it seems that the wild beasts came and replaced the maize roots with those of weeds. Following that, the twins had to undergo many ordeals to restore the maize and liberate their people from the evil spirits the twins had let loose by failing to work for the good of the people. The myths imparted morals, told stories, and boosted the faith of the Maya people. The myth as a basis for astronomy and agriculture while myths were like Bible stories to impart the truths attached to moral behavior, the Maya learned other truths from them. From their sacred myths flowed sciences that could be harnessed to improve the lives of the people. The Kukulkan was believed to be the feathered serpent and one of the gods who created Earth. In the Aztec sector of the Yucatan, Kukulkan was called Quetzalcoatl. He was seen as the morning star or the evening star. It is seen in the Western Hemisphere at dawn or at dusk in cycles of 236 days with an eight-day gap between the cycles. This is the planet Linus. In the Quiche region, Guatemala at Chichen Itza, one of the featured archaeological sites is El Castillo or the Temple of Venus. At the spring and autumnal equinoxes, the shadow it casts appears to be like that of a serpent, slithering down the steps, 
The spring equinox marked the time when the people were to begin their planting, and the autumnal equinox marked the harvest time. This was especially essential because the Yucatan Peninsula is in the tropics, where the seasonal changes aren't as dramatic. The Mayan scientists at that time carefully plotted the course of Venus throughout the night sky, and from that, located many other constellations, including Ursa Minor, or the Little Bear, that revolves around the North Star. They also identified the constellation Pleiades near the North Star. From those constellations, they could determine the settings on a compass, as well as their position in relation to the sky. The Maya measured the orbit of Venus accurately, the archaeologists report. Venus gave the Maya the basis for the invention of the calendar. The astronomy and numerology of the Maya has been recorded in their codices. The Dresden Codex, the Paris Codex, the Madrid Codex, the Broglie Codex. They are all named after the cities that house the original manuscripts and stone tablets. Human Sacrifice and Bloodletting The people of the ancient world could control their own behavior, build their own buildings, establish societies and governments, and sustain themselves. However, there were other forces in their worlds which they couldn't control, like rain, sun, wind, storms, seasons, volcanoes, fire. In any belief system, whether it be religious or scientific, a causal relationship is created. Every effect has a cause. For example, if one doesn't weed the crops, it could be destroyed. Such an effect was under the control of human beings. In the case of the forces of nature, the people of Mesoamerica delineated a spectrum of gods to whom they could pray and placate in the case of unfavorable natural disasters or occurrences such as floods and dry seasons. To prevent these disasters, ancient people felt they could make the ultimate sacrifice, that of slaughtering others to appease their gods. Believe it or not, but during the early pre-classic period, only kings and captured nobles were used for human sacrifice. Bloodletting was usually performed by the ruling elite, but commoners also practiced it. This channel is part of the History Hit Network. Stick around to find out more. Stick around to find out more. The stabbing happened just a few yards from here. It was a frenzied attack. 23 stab wounds inflicted by the same number of assassins. It's one of the most notorious murders in history and it determined the course of Western civilization. Bloodletting occurred in connection with a life event like marriages, births, or burial ceremonials. To the Maya, blood meant life and they believed that the deities had made blood sacrifices to bring life to their people. Bloodletting could be minor, like the piercing of the tongue or parts of the genitalia. It was preceded by a time of fasting and abstinence. The drops of blood that were shed were collected on paper and burnt. Mayan burial customs 
The Maya reverently placed the body of their departed in burial chambers beneath the flooring in their homes. A piece of maize or a smooth stone of jade or the like was placed in the mouth. Cinnabar, which is a reddish substance made from the soft wood of the cinnabar tree, was laid on or alongside the body. To the Maya, red was symbolic of death. Then the body was wrapped in a shroud. Sometimes statues of gods or other useful objects were buried with the decedent, the purpose of which was to help the deceased in their journey through the afterlife. This is similar to the practices observed in ancient Egypt. In the case of their kings and queens, exotic tombs were built. Commemorative pottery, figurines, masks, and sculptures of gods were placed in these tombs. In addition, some archaeologists have discovered food items buried in nooks to give the ruler sustenance while on the journey. Death, a journey to a better life. In the current century, death is viewed as an ending, which is the implication that it's a finality. This happens because even the greatest religions don't always alleviate the human fears rooted in the skepticism of modern man. In the Mayan world, the people were ingrained with the ideals of the afterlife. They were convinced that one would definitely be reincarnated either in a new human form or a spiritual one. Many of their myths and stories repeated the theme that a god was killed in battle but brought back in a more powerful state to overcome his enemies. There were a number of myths about the hero twins discussed earlier. One of them relates how one of the twins was slaughtered but reincarnated and given new magical tools which the two used to overcome and defeat devils from the underworld who sought to imprison them. The deceased was believed to be reborn to a new life and brought benefit to all those he or she left behind. The Maya religion taught that people descended to Chibalba upon death and have to work their way up to a new life in Tamawanshi. However, if one submits himself or herself to being the subject of human sacrifice, they aren't relegated to the difficult struggles of the underworld, Chibalba, but are taken up immediately to the higher life when they die. The people were also told, those who die violent deaths may aspire to the heavens. That also served as a motivation for military service. Women who died in childbirth, it was believed, weren't required to travel through the underworld before ascending to their higher life either. In ancient Carthage, human sacrifice was practiced before great battles. Stories about human sacrifice are related in the Christian Bible as well. The greater sacrifices were those of an only son or daughter, but captured enemies were also among the subjects used. The Maya didn't practice human sacrifice as often as the Aztec, Olmec, civilization. At the bottom of the Temple of Venus in Chichen Itza, the archaeologists found bones of 42 people. They had been thrown into the mouth of the enchanted well, the pit created by an old spring. <laughs> Three. Mayan mathematics, calendar, astronomy, writing, art, and architecture.
Every culture from the Egyptians to the Mayans to the American Indians to the Bedouins created bestiaries that enabled them to express their relationship with nature. Ashes and Snow is a 21st century bestiary filled with species from around the world. Nature's orchestra includes not just Homo sapiens, but elephants, whales, manatees, eagles, cheetahs, orangutans, and many others. Gregory Colbert Accuracy and Utilitarian Usage Investigators have uncovered the fact that these ancient people had sophisticated knowledge far beyond that of many other cultures in the world. The usefulness of this knowledge was to promote successful agriculture and measurements of the passage of time. Their mathematics was very advanced for a primitive culture, and their calendar served the function of helping the people plant and harvest. Mathematicians have analyzed their numerical system and found them to be highly accurate. The Decimal System of Mathematics Much of today's knowledge about Maya mathematics is derived from their codices. Many of these were unfortunately destroyed by a missionary, Bishop Diego de Landa. He was afraid that the old myths were signs of the devil, so he burnt many of the original documents, an example of the ill-intended tradition that such would eliminate idolatry. The Maya based their numerical formulas on the number 20, which is what vigesimal means, as opposed to the number 10 for the decimal system. Investigators speculate they used the number 20 because the digits of the hand and feet equal 20. There are glyphs in the Mayan ruins showing carved symbols representing the numbers. They bear close resemblance to the abacus. Although they huh. didn't develop multiplication and division, it wasn't difficult to develop a system for doing that, as did the merchants who conducted trade and ran the stalls in the marketplaces of Mesoamerica. The Mesoamericans and the Aztecs, just north of them, were only two of the few pre-classic civilizations to use zero. A shell-shaped glyph was used to symbolize zero. While some argue that the Babylonians used zero, this isn't true. The Babylonians only used zero as a placeholder. Rather than have very long glyphs for large figures, the Maya utilized a bar below their system of dots. Each bar represented the number five, and a number of them could be used if necessary. Addition could also be performed by adding up columns. The Mayan calendar. The Maya people had three calendars, very much like the three calendars used today. The Farmer's Almanac, the traditional Gregorian calendar, and the Ephemeris, used for maritime navigation and even astrology. The Ephemeris is a daily journal of the positions of celestial objects like planets, stars, and even artificial satellites. It's used at sea to determine longitude and latitude, by scientists to track artificial satellites, and by astrologers to make predictions based on positions of the planets and stars at the time of birth and the current day. The first Maya calendar was for honoring their gods and contained 13 months of 20 days each, with one shorter month of 19 days. There were 13 creator gods. 
During the short month, the Maya were instructed not to wash or do hard work. This is reminiscent of some of the practices of Orthodox religions. A year was called Tzolkin, and consisted of 260 days. The second calendar, called the Hab, is astronomically accurate. It consisted of 365 days like that used today. It also predicted leap year. Because the first two calendars didn't coincide day for day, it was shown that they did return to their starting position every 584 days. The orbit of the planet Venus is 584 days. The third calendar was for convenience sake. Rather than increase the number of digits for a large number, it was a way to delineate occurrences that were periodic over long periods of time. According to the calculations of the position of Venus based on the celestial equator rather than the Earth's equator, the celestial equator takes into account the 23-degree tilt of the Earth on its axis. The position of Venus in the Tzolkin and the Hab would be the same. The Maya therefore held grand festivals every 104 years when that happened. This calendar was called the Long Count Calendar. The Long Count Calendar was represented on carved tabloids or on circular discs or wheels. After the crisis of Y2K was resolved, people were still concerned as the Mayan calendar is said to have predicted the end of time. According to the calculations made on the basis of the Long Count calendar, the date was December 21st, 2012. What the Doomsday Prophets failed to note was the fact that the Maya dealt with cycles. When one cycle was complete, a new cycle or new creation date was set. Accuracy of the Mayan calendar Extensive tests have been conducted, the goal of which was to conclude whether or not the Mayan calendar was accurate. Most of the studies compared the Julian calendar, composed during the reign of Julius Caesar, and the Gregorian calendar, named after Pope Gregory during the 16th century, with the Mayan calendar. Many of the studies indicated that the Mayan calendar was inaccurate. However, the weaknesses of those studies stem from the fact that the Julian and the Gregorian calendars were based on a solar day, a little less than 24 hours long, but the Long Count calendar and the religious or Tzolkin calendar weren't based on solar days, as was the harbor. Another more obvious weakness is the fact that there may not be sufficient justification for comparison with calendars developed in the first century, Julian calendar, and 16th century Gregorian. Even today there have to be occasional adjustments to our time in order to satisfy the numerical demands of the atomic clock, which is the most accurate timepiece we How have How much do you want to bet we stole the, the concept Julian of time the in the calendar, calendar from the Mayans? Based on that. In from studies the Native conducted people. by the Canadian Museum of History, the cycles predicted by the Mayan calendar are accurate with only an error of 19 minutes. The other studies discussed above were much more stringent and sought to show a 98% degree of accuracy. Despite some inaccuracies, the people who lived during the ancient era, the prehistoric development of the Mayan calendar is still quite amazing. The Maya were intelligent and skillful enough to develop a systematic way of explaining the passage of time and its relationship with agriculture and religion.
that suited their purposes. Mayan astronomy. The apparent movement of the sun and the moon were perceived according to Galileo's geocentric system, by which the earth is understood to be the center of the universe. Their religious interpretation of these celestial objects consisted of the heaven world, Tamoanshan, as signified by the day, and the underworld, Chibalba, as signified by the night. Earth was understood as being the place that lies between the two worlds. The Mayan astronomers were the priests. These priests were called the wise men who study heaven. They spent many night hours observing the skies with its planets and stars. Mayan priests were soothsayers, that is to say that they could make predictions based on their observations. They predicted the seasons when it is best to plant and harvest. These astronomers kept updating their tables as one would their software in order to increase accuracy. This was extremely important in an agricultural society. Astronomy wasn't regarded like magic. There were deified spirits associated with stars and planets, but they fulfilled the useful purpose of identification and description. The sun was named Tonatia, which was the deity represented by 